I'm no George, but I'll do my best. You're better. <laughs> we're, we're streaming live. <laughs> oh, well, spring. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Well, this evening, we are blessed to be, uh, to have with us Pastor Toby Kurth from San Francisco. And uh, as many of you know, he and Christ Church is, is uh, with us in partnership in the gospel in the San Francisco Bay Area as, as a sister church is on mission. So, so thankful. And um, actually, I'm really excited to talk about the topic we're going to talk about, because I think that one, it has a lot of relevance to today, to the things that we're talking about. Two is that I do think there's a lot of confusion in those areas, not just regarding you know, some of the things that are happening now, but in general, some of the things that um, just what it means to be a Christian in the world. And so um, we're going to talk about grace amongst an, in, in the midst of non-essentials. And, and uh, what's interesting is that we're at a time where, you know, basically uh, a governmental institution has said certain uh, practices, businesses are essential, certain ones are not. And everyone's sort of wrestling, including government, churches, is wrestling, business is wrestling with, what does that look like? How do you make those type of decisions where it doesn't sweep over you? And how do you move forward in processing all that? What is that? I do think there are some practical implications as well, not just regarding how to respond to COVID, but it could be areas of gray area issues, um, you know, how to deal with the whole legalism, licentiousness question and all that. So. Do you mind if I just pray for us and then uh, yeah, please. Throw, ask you a couple of questions? Father, I thank you for um, just this time. Thank you for Toby. Thank you for this dear friend, brother, partner in the gospel. I pray that you would be with him, with uh, Rebecca and their family. Uh, be with Christ Church, O oh Lord, in the city. Continue to pour out your spirit upon them. Help them to be the truly the, the city on a hill and, and uh, the salt and light of the earth so that they would be in every way um, a, a picture of your mercy, your kindness, your love to the world that we live in. Thank you that they've been already on that mission in doing so and that you would continue to give them strength and perseverance in the midst of all the turmoil and trouble. But we're thankful that despite it all, we know that you use all things for our good and your glory. So we, we just really trust that, believe that, and your word shows us the way. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I mean, any just first thoughts about, you know, the topic itself? Because you presented it to me. I thought, man, that is so awesome. I do think that that, just to even think about that. Oh, by the way, George says, good morning, Sam and Toby. That's awesome. Because <laughs> it's 5 a.m. there. And Clinton from Australia says, good day. Well, George has already <laughs> run five miles and prayed three hours. <laughs> Yes. And now he's doing uh, insanity as, as he's watching this. That's great. <laughs> what do you think? So what are your first thoughts? Hello. Think, and Sharon Pack says hello to you. So I think you know, if you look at the context of Romans 14, obviously it's yes. a big burden of the Apostle Paul that he would bring the church to unity and, and the unity around Christ and who he is. And there were always throughout human, you know, all human history, just disputable matters, things that people mm -hmm. will fight about. Uh, and so the Apostle Paul is trying to bring focus in and help them see that um, 
that there are some matters that if you properly apply grace, as my friend Kurt Allen was saying, um, that if you're understanding grace from a biblical perspective, that leaves a lot of room um, for people to disagree with you, for, pe for people to have disputable matters, um, mm -hmm. whether that's on politics or on mm -hmm. how you're feeling about COVID or when a church should meet again, all those kinds of things. Uh, we can't allow any of those things to fall into the category of things that divide the church. That, that you know, the unity of Christ, uh, when you consider that, like, the last high priestly prayer, you know, recorded in John 17, that the thing that Jesus chooses to pray for almost, you know, right at the very end of his ministry is the unity of the church. Mm -hmm. And he connects that directly with people knowing that he is who he says he is and the world knowing that he is who he says he is. And he ties it to the unity. And man, the unity, I think we re I repassed it. I repassed it and make light of it. What would it look like if I really thought that I was to have a unity like unto the unity that the father has with the son? Mm. Um, mm. And I think we have, have led identity politics um, and unity of opposition to the other, because that's easy, mm -hmm. feel like unity when actually it's division. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, and you see it like, play out on, on social yeah. media and Facebook right now, right? Like yes. people are starting not just to take different positions, but are starting to kind of almost angrily oppose those that, that view things differently than they are. I mean, everyone apparently is an armchair epidemiologist and can make whatever argument they want to make. Um, and it's crazy. <laughs> so what do you think is the impetus upon which everyone, you know, why people do that? Why do we, not just people, but we all in some level, whether we might not necessarily broadcast it to the world, but in our hearts, there is that struggle, that wrestling of not wanting to show grace in the midst of, you know, these type of circumstances and situations. I mean, I think at the core of it, yeah, this idea, and you've heard me preaching on this before, but we were created for a unity of commonality as image bearers of God. Mm -hmm. Sin and rebellion breaks that up. And then instead of striving for a unity of commonality, we now only know how to strive for a unity of what I would call opposition against the other. Mm -hmm. that, that I'm going to join with those that believe like me, and I'm going to define my legitimacy by scapegoating, critiquing, mm -hmm. or being against those that aren't like me. And if I can put some biblical language to it, then it's all the more powerful. Because um, here's what I think, and I, this I, what I see. You ask about kind of the heart level issue. This is what I yes. wonder about for myself and for all of us: um, a unity of of um, of common doctrine mm -hmm. is just easier than a genuine, challenging spiritual unity with Jesus that calls me to love and serve others as myself, mm. regardless of the common doctrine. Yeah. So you can have a unity of your common belief about Jesus and not mm -hmm. actually a unity in Jesus. And mm -hmm. how do we know the difference? John 17. If it's a unity in Jesus, it, what it looks like is a greater love for the Father and the Son and a greater love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and a greater love for the world. Mm -hmm. And so if it, it, you can't tell me then that you, you love Jesus so much that you hate this group or that person. It doesn't work. Mm hmm. Yeah. Clinton said tribal cheap shotting in rhetorical debate using gifts to divide and not to bridge. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I think it, I think it's easy. It just feels better. Like that's it's easier than 
loving and serving my neighbor. Like I've even, uh, you know, over the years in pastoring, uh-huh. you know, you start seeing all of us have faults. This isn't picking on anyone in particular, but like when you see particularly young men or, or sometimes older men, but, but men um, get fixated on end times theology, oftentimes, um, and you look at how they're preoccupying all their time with it, when you, when you get down to it, there's often a deeper relational rift between them and the Lord or between them and their spouse or them and some friends and having mm-hmm. certainty about a particular doctrinal area feels spiritual and mm-hmm. it's easier than actually looking into my own heart, repenting and, and laying down my life in the same way that Christ has laid his life down for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you then avoid the other extreme, which is, hey, if we want unity, let's join the Catholic Church, because there's only one church. And, and I've heard that before, right, where it's, there is always this um, push-pull of wanting to strive for unity or strive for, hey, let's stand on our positions, and these are worth fighting for, and do whatever it takes to make your point. How do you not go, like, why do we not all become, uh, to a point, unify under all circumstances? You know, there's a lot of different ways of talking about this, but I think um, I would probably distinguish between different kinds of unity. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about institutional unity. You have that language that some theologians will use where they talk about the organic church and the institutional church. And the organic church is everyone that believes in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's trusting in Christ for their salvation. And I think the way I read scripture, they're called a brother or a sister hard stop. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes the institutional restraints that each of us have for, you know, for usually well-intentioned reasons can inhibit our ability to partner with different Mm -hmm. churches. You know, Mm -hmm. we can't necessarily plant a church together if there's not a lot of alignment around things, Mm -hmm. but man, we can love each other and -hmm. we can learn from each other and we can appreciate Mm -hmm. each other. If that person, no matter what they believe, if they believe in, in the Holy Trinity, they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're trusting in Christ for their salvation, find me anywhere in Scripture where I don't call them a brother or a sister hard stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably we would say for Protestants, we err on the side of splitting, not on unity, right? Yeah. And I think it's <laughs> a, you want that certainty. You want that certainty yes. of identity that doesn't look like love and sacrifice. And that's where I think it's, you know, it's, um, and then I think there's a bigger, broader issue too, is, is what does it look like to love people? Because again, I've preached on this probably a ton, uh, I think at Wellspring too, but, but um, mm-hmm. if we're really thinking about it, there is no other for us. Mm-hmm. There are only broken image bearers that need Jesus that have found him and broken image bearers that need Jesus that haven't yet found him. That's it. Mm-hmm. There's no other. Um, and so if that's how I view humanity, then, then who do I think that I have the right to disparage or diminish in any way? This is mm-hmm. one of um, Desmond Tutu's core ideas and how he led through, based on his conviction of the gospel, how he led through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Is he, has a very, he has a very powerful line where he says, I cannot diminish you without diminishing myself because our humanity is bound up in each other's. Mm. Uh, and if we really believed that, um, I think you'd have a whole lot more John 17 kind of power being unleashed in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned um, Romans 14 and, you know, that really, when you had uh, mentioned the, the topic, 
the first thought obviously comes into mind is Romans 14. It's sort of the critical text upon which we're thinking about grace and dealing with you know, discernment over these things. Romans 14 quite often is misinterpreted, don't you think? Yeah, it, it becomes I mean, everyone's excuse to do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. It also is the idea that that there is a weaker and a stronger and the stronger always yields to the weaker. You know what I mean? That, that mentality, Julie. And um, I was talk, having a conversation with somebody and we we're talking about how sometimes the stronger always yielding, it depends on what we're talking about. What do you think Paul's referring to when he's talking about the stronger and the weak? And I think that would help a lot of people because to even discern some of these things that we're talking about, it could be as, I think it's it's yeah. um in this uh, D A Carson's done some good work on this, but Curtis Allen, uh, who's a good friend of mine, that preached for us this last week, and he preached on Romans fourteen, and he spent a little bit of time actually talking about those categories um, mm -hmm. because it, we we think of them kind of more in binary ways, mm -hmm. and he made them a little bit more complex, where it's just people are in different places um, with their spiritual maturity and their faith and their walk, um, and there's complexity and interactions on the basis of that, and I would say too like there are probably areas of, of, not probably, absolutely, there are areas of your faith that are more mature than mine, and there's areas of my faith that are more mature than yours. Mm -hmm. so there's going to always be these points of, of mm -hmm. um, potential conflict, right. kind of living with each other in, in, a, in a way that understands that and appreciates yeah. that. Yes. And then on the flip side, D.A. Carson and commenting on, on uh, 1 Corinthians, and because um, mm -hmm. oftentimes people will use these texts about weaker, weaker brothers or weaker believers, um, and they use it as an excuse to kind of try to uh, put restraints on you that scripture doesn't put on you. So one of mm -hmm. them is like alcohol, right? So someone will use mm -hmm. that passage to say, you can never drink because a weaker brother might see you drink. And, and so that person's coming to you and they're telling you what you can yes. and cannot do. Yes. And Carson says, when someone's coming to you and telling you what you can or cannot do, make no mistake about it. They put themselves in the position of the stronger brother. Right. Yes. <laughs> Yes. They're not, yeah, they're not the one that you need to be worried about. Yes. Uh, it's the person that doesn't know and hasn't been fully taught, like in that Corinthians context, where someone that isn't mature enough in their faith to realize that food offered to an idol isn't actually worship of that idol. So mm -hmm. they could actually be shipwrecked in their faith by thinking that they're somehow turning their back on Jesus. And so that's where Paul's saying, be sensitive and careful with people like that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's not saying let the Pharisees shipwreck your faith with all kinds of rules and legalistic restraints <laughs> yes they i mean it's that's a great way to put it is that the pharisees were we uh you know in our context of oh i i don't think you should drink that glass of wine that's we, we sort of in our day think that is the weaker person but in actuality they're taking the stronger position as much as the pharisees would have taken that same type of position I've never claiming. been able to find the definitive like quote attribution, but I've heard it attributed to different different theologians or figures throughout history. But the phrase is um, for the weaker brother always, for the Pharisee never. <laughs> Which I find is actually a pretty helpful yeah. guy. Now we want to have empathy and care for everybody, but at the same time, um, you don't want to let people throw restraints on you um, because of of their own convictions mm. about television or movies right. or homeschooling right. or not homeschooling or all these different things that that people can tend to like make a, 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 a measuring binary 
then yeah, it becomes I, binary. Also I, I think sometimes we can we can um we can misunderstand these things, I think, because some churches and churches I've been a part of in the past, um, and hopefully not us now, uh, they think they have a great degree of a great degree of unity. Um, but what they've done is carefully crafted um a high bar for their desired homogeneity. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't believe like them, you never come or you never stay. And so over years and years of people that don't believe like them never coming and never staying, everyone agrees. And then they call that unity. And mm -hmm. I just, I don't think it often is. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's comfort and common culture or things like that more than it is um, you really having a unity. Right, right. Well, that goes back to your whole point about Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is that the, there's unity in Christ, truly in Christ. And then there's unity in culture, but it could be unity in Christian culture. And sometimes it's actually, uh, whether it's um, our own self-deception or just the God of this world blinds the minds, you know, so there is there's sort of a veil that because it it sort of bleeds into each other. It's not supposed to, but it does. Why did why is it so hard for the church in general to be able to distinguish between a unity that is found in Christ and a unity that is found in a Christian culture or subculture? Yeah, because we build our identity around scapegoating those that aren't like us. Mm. Um, you see that in society with with race. You see that in, in the church with doctrine. Oh, on the church with race too. But I think it's a um, it's interesting because I think it's it's. Uh, I did this test a couple of years ago and challenged a couple of friends to do it. There's a lot of blogs and a lot of websites out there that I really like and benefit from. Mm -hmm. But as I started thinking about kind of the blogging world, um, and I started asking if I put this lens on it, is this article or this post, is it is it reinforcing my identity in Jesus? increasing my love in, in Jesus and therefore my love for others? Or is it telling me that my tribe's right and that tribe's wrong and reinforcing this identity of opposition to the other? Is it a scapegoating passage or is it a freedom in Christ to love and serve passage or an mm -hmm. article? Mm -hmm. And man, some mm -hmm. of my favorite sites, I'd say it's probably 75 plus percent scapegoating. 75 mm -hmm. plus percent reinforcing in things in me that do not need to be reinforced mm -hmm. in the name of good doctrine. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that is sobering. You know, um, you were the first one to tell me about Darren Patrick. And so after Darren Patrick was a pastor, um, one of the founders of Acts 29 ended up committing suicide about a week, a week and a half ago. And uh, I was listening to a blog of his a few days before he died. And he was talking, he was being interviewed and he was talking about how um, he had, he had created, he had uh, sort of succumbed to an image of what it meant to be a famous pastor. And he was talking about in the midst of all the Ferguson riots where their church was centrally located in the midst of that, he felt as though he had to go to a conference so he left that time where the elders had to deal with it. He went to a conference because and he, um, there was a book signing and all that. And he, he felt as though he couldn't not do that yeah. because he had to keep the image going. 
And now that's in a very extreme picture of some of the things that we're talking about. But he described, and I've used, heard this phrase before quite often, it's the evangelical industrial complex, you know, the whole yeah. idea of a system that is creating this sense of, um, you know, an image that is, that sort of drives this division in a sense. I mean, why, why do you feel as though something that is so good, which is the preaching of God's word, um, you know, resources, they, these are great tools, uh, music, and yet it, it veers off or it leads, it doesn't really um, lead to maybe the fullest expression of what can happen through such things, because why does that happen? And how does that happen? I mean, it kind of has to be that we've submitted Christianity or our conception of Christianity to our culture. So I, I do a lot of meetings in downtown San Francisco. Uh, and so I used to just do some work on my laptop or um, read or study or do whatever else in the Hyatt and Barcadero lobby, which is a pretty big conferencing hotel. Mm -hmm. And over the course of sitting there, over the course of about a year, um, every industry group came through there. And they had their badges on and they had their books and they had their speakers and they had their little, it just looks like any conference you've ever seen. And I started uh -huh. to realize, man, all these conferences are the same, different speakers, different books, the exact same cultural kind of format. And then I thought, oh my goodness, Christian conferences are exactly the same. Uh, and they have their, their own little heroes, their own books um, and their own lingo. And it's a way of building and reinforcing identity. Mm. Um, and I, I actually um, have come to be very suspicious or skeptical um, about conferences. Um, as much yeah. as I used to kind of love them, and I still like the opportunities to go and meet people and you always want to learn. But you start realizing like you could sit down in the kind of evangelical world and we could put the name of 20 pastors on a list. And that would that would make up 90 percent of the speaking slots of the conferences around the country mm -hmm. and they've retitled their messages but it's the same message they preached someplace before and it's really this kind of cult of personality built around reinforcing tribal identity more mm -hmm. than it is mobilizing people to love and serve jesus and love and serve their neighbors mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so honestly i would much rather um take a group to malawi to spend time with our care workers uh in you know in machinica and other places than i would take a group of leaders to a conference. Right. Yeah. Because where well, are they we... going to see more of Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, listening to George and his stories and just who he encounters, caring for the most vulnerable child who will never, you know, they'll never be someone who resources, gives you resources or makes you famous or anything. But, but that's, it's just so easy to go get sucked into a, a mindset, a very Western sort of consumeristic mindset, and we don't even realize it. Yeah, I agree. I want to go back to the whole question of, um, because just going back to the whole concept of where we are today regarding COVID and everything like that, um, states are opening up slowly, and as they are, uh, there are some decisions that are being made. In fact, there's a lot even regarding, and I don't know, I'm very curious, where, where's Christchurch at right now as you're processing 
you know, the next steps and phases of what, what uh, ministry is going to look like as you come back? You know, we're still like you guys, I'm sure just responding to the situation, trying to love and care for our church and look mm -hmm. for creative ways to love and serve our neighbors and our city. Um, and we've seen a lot of really good stuff come out of that. And so mm -hmm. I think we're, um, we'll, we're trying to make plans and preparations and start thinking through what it could look like when we're able to meet again. Mm -hmm. Also recognizing that there are, there are those in our congregation that, that because of health concerns won't probably be able right. to meet again until there's a vaccine right. or a therapy. Uh, and there are those that because of the trauma of the season that we're in, won't feel comfortable meeting again. So trying to think through those kind of elements mm. and put some kind of protocols and plans in place. Mm -hmm. And I, there was a, a pastor, Steve Clifford, that's out in San Jose that I really respect. And he put a post up last week that was really encouraging to me. And he basically just said, um, uh, make no mistake about it, you can't close the church. Like the church is always open. The fact that like we can't meet corporately is being called like a church closure is mm -hmm. kind of crazy yeah. as though the church can't exist if it doesn't have um you know a gathering on a sunday and that's what i've wondered about too like it's it's this um meeting centric and i love our sunday gatherings I, I think they're they're one of my you know favorite things i look forward to and i think god uses the gathering of his people in powerful ways so i'm not minimizing that but i am wondering why there's so much of a focus on a sunday meeting and i think some of it might come back to that consumer kind of thing you're talking about. We've we've all been trained to consume a product. Mm. We want our music, we want our preaching, and we, you know, we want it in a certain format. And you start looking back through history, um, it, you know, during uh, the plagues with Martin Luther, they couldn't meet corporately. They don't even talk about it in, that I've seen in any of his writings. He's talking about the church as the people that are out serving their neighbors. But he doesn't even mention the fact that they can't gather on a Sunday, at least not as a main point of like, it's not even a thing for him. Um, and then uh, Richard Baxter, uh, during another plague that was in England in the 1600s, Richard Baxter says, look, um, if the government tells us we can't meet because preaching Christ should be illegal, we meet. If the government tells us we can't meet, because it'll be dangerous and put people's lives uh, in harm's way because of the plague, then we don't meet. It's not very complicated. So like this, this conflating of these categories of essential and non-essential is not like, and I get it. Yes, the church is essential, but the church that's essential isn't stopped. The government's not made it illegal to, to you know, for us to connect online and do our services. And in fact, you know, under the current administration, the government made churches able to get all the, the pay loan protection. And they were specifically wanting to make sure that churches were cared for during this time. So you don't have a government setting itself in opposition to the church. You have leaders that are, you know, way in over their heads, trying to figure out how they can best care for their states and cities. For the most part, there will be government overreach and stupid politics. Absolutely. But on the lion's share, I think people are just trying to do the best they can with with what they know. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a. This is such an interesting time. I I have to admit, I'm. Um, I do think that you know, and obviously we're all having worship online, and I don't see things changing that much. Maybe we go back to a time where there's ten people allowed to meet 
together. But I feel like that will be for a while. I think that's phase three in California. And I think that's, I heard Governor Newsom talk about the fact that that's a possibility, possibly at the end of uh, mid-June or something like that. I think like it's that. about a month. But, but with social distancing is what I've heard. Yes, yes, yes. We've, but actually, for, we've looked into doing, I've looked into a little bit um, using an outdoor uh, venue somewhere in San Francisco where we can distance right. and do that, but I don't know. Right. Because um, we all we also want to be in a facility or you have to be able to stream live stream as well. So yes. We have to figure those things out. Yes, yes. So the, there are a lot of complexities, I, I think. I think the point that you had made to me is the most important one, which is that when we're dealing with this, there are gonna be people with different perspectives and we have a choice. Either I'm going to hold my ground, say this is how it is going to be and it must be applied my way across the board or recognize that there is a, um, on something that is not so clear, there is some freedom to have some distinctiveness and it's not always gonna be unified in terms of the application of how this is all rolling out with how ch churches are processing it, uh, church leadership is proce processing it, but there needs to be grace for those who don't operate in the same exact way that we do. Don't well, you think? Our, our final Sunday yeah. meeting all together when we was our first Sunday live streaming because we had people in the congregation that couldn't be there for health mm -hmm. reasons. Uh, and I, you know, I think by God's grace made the point on that Sunday that um, you're not going to get accolades um, or condemnations for, for coming or for staying at home. <laughs> yes. What you believe God's led you to do. Yeah. Um, and we as a church community will rally behind and support everyone in how they're following their convictions before the Lord. Right. Right. That was, you're right. Actually, that's exactly right. That was sort of the last Sunday that I think most churches met. And I think that was generally most of the messages. I mean, there, but there's definitely a divergence slowly but surely happening. And so that's why I do think the whole concept of grace in the midst of these things are so critical because otherwise we do lose sight of uh, John 17. Yeah, and I think in grace for people that, that um, even when they do stupid things, there was a church in Georgia that against all counsel went back to meeting um, for two weeks. Uh, and then a number of families came down with coronavirus. And so they shut mm -hmm. the church down again and apologized. So that's the kind of thing where it's just, and I've seen other things too, where like um, in different sectors, like, oh, well, if you really trusted in God, you would meet, God's gonna protect us, all these kinds of things. Um, and that's the hard part for me too, is to, it, it'd be easy for me to just dismiss those people as being idiots. Um, but that would be arrogant and not helpful either. Just understanding Len, maybe they have a sincere conviction that like the Holy Spirit's got a hedge of protection around them. And man, I hope they stay healthy. Um, but I also hope they don't rip up churches saying that people somehow don't believe if they don't act the same way they do. Mm -hmm. I, I really liked what you said about, and I think you said that Curtis had said this, is the idea that um, we have different levels of maturity over different areas of our lives. And how we respond to each other in different areas could be based on the maturity level of the uniqueness of that person in that specific area. No one has sort of the, you know, has the whole 
gamut of maturity in every single area since we're all maturing. Yeah. And so recognizing that is that's that was like I thought that's really insightful. And it's very important for being able to relate to one another and care for one another and be able to love one another. Oh, I agree completely. Uh, and I think just knowing that and understanding that, and, and it's a very easy thing to evaluate mm. is the way you're thinking, um, producing more empathy and love for others, mm-hmm. or is it producing division or, you know, some other negative kind of thing towards others? Right. Right. And if it's not producing love for others, it's probably not Jesus. Hmm. George has a question. Oh, what's his question? <laughs> How do we help churches who do not have the resources to do all the online streaming, etc.? Even in the U.S., there must be some church communities who are falling apart. Uh, do we have a responsibility to jump in and help? How do we define other vulnerable spots? Example, old age homes where believers must be so alone. That's a really great point because we think of it from the Western perspective where most churches do have access some way. Like I know there are some uh, ministries, organizations that that actually have access to online, but places like Africa, they don't have access to that. So not meeting means not meeting. I think uh, this is where um, having meaningful partnerships or leaning into those that do have meaningful uh, partnerships is helpful. So um, I checked in with Manuel Kamkwani, who's a ministry partner. I went to seminary with him. He's in the long way. Uh, in Malawi, where obviously we're hands, uh, Wellspring and us are partnered with hands there. Um, And I was asking him what they're doing. And so they've Mm -hmm. been doing a little bit of online stuff, but actually they were going to to try to get some radio time to get services up on the radio because most Malawians, even in the poorest parts, have access to a radio. Mm -hmm. So they were getting good teaching in Chichewa up and so we, we uh, wired some money over there to support that effort to help them buy some radio time. Um, so that's one kind of thing, I think. In America, there's a, a national campaign called Churches Helping Churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's looking for those churches that are on the margins that don't have online giving capacity. Um, you know, kind of a lot of historically black churches or, you know, Hispanic churches in poor areas, uh, at least in California, um, might not make it through. So they're, they've put some criteria and guidance up where you can give to their fund and they'll help vet the churches or put some guidance up for how you can find those churches yourself and, um, and make connections. So our church has had the opportunity to do that with, uh, with four churches so far, just $3,000 grants and just writing, writing a letter, just saying, um, you know, as an expression of partnership and love and that we value your church's place in our city, we would love to come alongside of you um, with a, with a grant, if that mm-hmm, would be mm-hmm. helpful to you. And so I think just thinking creatively along those lines of how you can love and support some of those different contexts, I think is good. And I think, look, it's, um, this is where, where it takes the whole church. Cause I can't drop into a place I don't know and provide meaningful support. Mm-hmm. But if I feel like God's led our church to provide meaningful support, then um, hopefully there's a partnership or a connection with someone like Manuel or someone like we've had locally mm-hmm. with this church is helping churches that can help us go in um, in ways that are actually helpful. So it's not a when mm-hmm. helping hurts kind of solution. And mm-hmm. then one thing I saw that was really cool, a friend of mine in the Midwest someplace, small town, um, and he's got, you know, he's got a pretty good sized church 
uh, and they're pretty good with technology. And he thought, who's not good with technology? And in his town, it was this, it was the fairly small Catholic church. And so he went to the Catholic priest and obviously they have doctrinal differences. And he said, um, would it be helpful to you if we just loaned you some equipment and brought it in here and helped you, and helped you go um, on Facebook Live with your services? Mm. And they did. So I think some mm. of that has been kind of cool because these days, like anyone with any kind of smartphone can get live mm -hmm. if someone just helps them out with some basic protocol. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of that's happening in the Bay Area where they're trying to identify churches that are on the margins and, and figure out, is it is it financial assistance? Is it technical assistance? Like mm -hmm. what is, mm -hmm. do these churches need to be able to continue their, their ministry? And then I think, um, the again, right as everything was closing down, um, I was contacted by a woman whose elderly father was in uh, in a in a convalescent home down in South City, and and uh, she'd asked if there was any way I could facilitate him getting a Bible, and I said I'll buy it and take it to him. So my hope would have been just sit with him and pray with him and get to know him a little bit. Mm -hmm. But when I got there to deliver that Bible, there were no outsiders allowed in. So I think mm. that's a, that's a challenge too. But he did you know still deliver the the large print Bible. Um, mm -hmm. to him with a message, you know, through his daughter mm -hmm. to him. Right. Um, right. And I think, I don't know what it is. I mean, I think it's early up at making um, and figuring out good solutions, but maybe, yes. uh, maybe it's support on the phone for prayer or yeah. something along those lines. But I yes. think what I love about George is his mind always goes to the vulnerable on the margins because <laughs> that's where Jesus would be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, uh, one of the, guys um, who we have worked with, uh, Gabi Torrent in, uh, in Villafranca, he, um, his wife, Anna, one of the things he told me was that, um, <laughs> you know, in, in his Google Translate, since we, that's how we communicate with each other. And he said, he, he said to me, uh, Amer Americans think all the health workers in Europe are all heroes. And he said, they're not heroes because none of them want to go into the, the senior homes, the convalescent homes. They all want to stay away from there because that's where it's most dangerous. So his wife, Anna, who has had a stroke, so because of that, she is very limited in her, but, and she's vulnerable, and yet she goes and works, and he prays that's for her. Beautiful. And I mean, that's their family, right? They're, they're very much, you know, they have some commonality. That's why I really want George and Gabby to meet because they- Well, but, the message you sent, me and I checked in with with uh, with him after that as well. Of here's another vulnerable population that also is known to be especially, um, you know, prone to being carriers, and that's homeless. Yes. And he went out and you know found five homeless men to bring in and serve as well, right? Yeah. Yes. But that's got to be a unique call, and I think like George's comment here, I was just looking at, yes. um, is mobilizing kind of just ordinary folks. Right. Um, and so like we've we've had it's been really. How do you do that? So Toby. How do you, how do the quote ordinary folks, because I, I think, especially again, in our consumeristic culture, where it's all about protect myself, protect my family, don't go out there, don't put yourself out there. How do you not do that? How do you actually do what George says, which is make opportunities for ordinary members, get people to go outside. Um, how do, how are we minister, how do we minister at this time period? Well, so there's a, there's an old Christian social teaching um, that we've been uh, building out over time in our church. Uh, and the technical term is subsidiarity. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you can imagine it as like a set of circles. So the inner circle is the individual to you. The next mm -hmm. circle out is immediate family, then maybe extended family, then maybe community church, whatever else, then county government, you know, whatever, all the way up mm -hmm. to the federal government. And the principle says that the closer the solution is to the middle, uh, the better solution is going to be, the higher the accountability and the greater capacity is built into the individual. And so who's in the best position to help you if you're in trouble? You. Yes. But if you can't help yourself for any reason, then, then you take that out and you help people take responsibility for those that are close to them in these, like, in these circles that kind of reach out farther and farther. And so if someone gets like a direct grant from the federal government, um, that looks like kind of free money with no strings attached or whatever else. And there's not accountability. There's not capacity building. There's, there's little beyond just a temporary need that's met with that. But if, if, if a community group in a church comes alongside someone in their community and, and, and raises money to help them through a need, man, that builds community that, that puts the love of Christ on display. And so we've been looking at this um, and saying, who's one of our pastors is an exceptionally gifted guy and has, you know, 30 years of government experience, 25 years of that was a Singaporean diplomat and saying it's all about building in capacity. And so we had a couple in our church that wanted to take the lead on getting a COVID relief fund. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of walked through that process with them to help them um, think it through and work it through and got guidance document out. And the church seeded it with some money and some matching grant money. And, and then um, there's the whole idea of that fund is that um, as you identify needs as just a regular church member, you first say, is there anything me or my community group or my friends can do to help this need? And then if you reach up against that capacity, then you can go to the fund um, for assistance with it. And we actually have released um, a lot of the funds, um, you know, anything under a certain amount, um, we've given people the freedom just to, just to apply and do it, um, mm -hmm. to distribute the money. And, the, you know, the money all comes from the church community anyway. And I think we've raised... Um, I think about $40,000 so far. Mm. Um, and so it's been a neat way to see people start to take ownership of their, of not only just their part of the church community, but also their part of our city. And, and mm. I'm hoping that, that um, as people just get their legs underneath them and start thinking more creatively about that, that maybe God will start using that to do as George says, to kind of build capacity and health um, and greater faith into people for how God might, use them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then being very clear too like we you know serve as you're able um it's not i i have you know close people to me that it would not be wise for them to go out and serve um because of health concerns or age or whatever else but there's others that can and are serving in really cool ways it's neat mm -hmm. to see on uh, on social media um just seeing how people are out there at different food banks and different places and have the opportunity to serve yeah. Um, I've had the chance to serve at our local school where we meet uh, there. The San Francisco Unified School District has done something like 800,000 meals so that um, helping with vulnerable kids in the city. I know you guys mm -hmm. have had that cultivating stuff like City Impact. So mm -hmm. maybe you can't mm -hmm. go in and serve at City mm -hmm. Impact, but maybe you can get some supplies together to go help and serve. Yeah. And then uh, Christian Wang that grew up in City Impact uh, is now leading City Team um, as an amazing guy. He's got this thing that we've been um, helping to support called Mobilize Love, and it's a food truck. And Christian's vision for it was 
Um, we have lots of food deserts in San Francisco. So places where there aren't any grocery stores, there aren't any convenience mm. stores, because there's not money to, to buy anything anyway. And so there's a really cool thing they do where they roll this food truck into these neighborhoods. And it reminded me so much of hands. Uh, I got George and Christian together years ago. It was a blast. Because <laughs> um, they're there not just to, to bring, they're there to bring love. They're there to bring the presence of Jesus. They're there to bring fun. Um, but they're also there to bring human dignity. And there's a certain amount, you know, of, of loss of dignity that maybe some people experience when they're sitting in a, uh, in a line at a soup kitchen or at a food bank, you know, it can be kind of a very hard experience, but man, when a food truck rolls up in a community that, that doesn't ever see a food truck, uh, and there's music and they're serving them great food and they're coming week after week to the same place to build presence and community in that place. It's a beautiful thing. Hmm. Uh, and they're, they're what is that called the food again? truck is um what they is will never serve food they wouldn't be excited to eat themselves hmm. what is it called again mobilize love uh and actually this is totally was not planned but um they've got now have i think a a, a twenty thousand dollar matching grant from the former nba star jeremy Lim uh to uh um for their program now wow so they're doing some cool stuff and they're doing some stuff in east bay as well um hmm. But I love it because it just brings dignity um, where they go and what with what they do. Um, and then there, there's a long-term vision for that too, to serve vulnerable kids in the city um, where Christian would love to just bring, you know, just bring these experiences that are just humanizing and fun and elevate a community. Mm. Wow, so interesting, yeah. Like so many people take for granted, right? Right, no, it's so true. I think uh, when I think about all the different challenges that we're facing today, what, you know, I was having a conversation with my kids regarding history and how C.S. Lewis talks about that there is a, an essential chronological snobbery that we have when it comes to, and you being a historian, you know, we tend to always think that whatever experiencing now is the worst ever, or there's never been anything like this. Um, no, the church has never experienced this before. We don't know. I just, I was just trying to talk to them and say, you know, people have been through some really terrible things in human history. We, we, and if you read history, because <laughs> there is a real value to it, to help us to work through some of the things and to recognize also that it's not just human, uh, biblical, uh, sorry, a world history, but it's biblical world history that yeah. there is a there is a parallel flow. And we we both uh, have been trained under a really great biblical theologian, Meredith Klein, and he, I mean, his whole point is Genesis one through three is really the key upon which we understand all of the the trajectory of human history. But, um, but importantly, this isn't a nitpick. He was yes. chapter four because that's when God gives. Yes. The gifts of metallurgy and yes. music and all those kinds of things, right? Yes. Yes. But we, you know, and again, you are a historian. You are down that track. What are some of the, why is history so important for us right now? I think like you said, perspective, but I think it's also faith building. Uh, you know, the work that Rodney Stark's done with the uh, rise of Christianity. And one of the things he traces in the early church isn't, isn't the question of, um, he's not, at, he's not answering a, a, a spiritual question. He's answering mm -hmm. the question of like, through what secondary means, as we would describe them, does the church grow? 
Mm. Uh, and he looks at it and a lot of it actually was how the church treated women with, you know, as, as equals and equal image bearer nature, um, how the church treated the poor, you know, all, all these things are built on this, this image bearer nature that every human being mm -hmm. is entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. Mm -hmm. But then that meant that when the plagues came, especially the plagues in Alexandria, um, and they started thinking, Jesus suffered and died for us and calls us to be willing to suffer and die for others. And so mm -hmm. two motivations were, were right in front of them. One was they really wanted to love and serve like Jesus loved and served. They took mm -hmm. that part of their identity very seriously, and they were a lot closer to suffering than many of us are today in the West. And then secondly, they believed that their eternity was secure and they couldn't be taken off the earth one minute before the Lord wanted them to be taken off the earth. So they weren't being like, like wantonly irresponsible, but they mm -hmm. were stepping into faith. And so what they started doing is not just staying in the cities during the plague, because anyone that had means left, but staying in the cities during the plague, not just to care for their own, but to care for any that were hurting. And so mm -hmm. people were afraid in the general population. And when their family members got sick with the plague, they would drag them out in the middle of the street and leave them there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Christians, the yes. followers of Jesus, would uh -huh. go and pick them up and bring them in. This is where many, many people think was the foundation of the first hospitals, because they mm. started clearing out homes and getting larger halls where they could serve these people. And there's great responses to it. I think it's uh, um, Julian and these letters between all these Roman officials is really mad because Christians aren't just caring for their own. They're caring for ours, too. And it's making us look bad. <laughs> so the Roman Empire mobilized um, funds for charity and pie, all those kinds of things, because they were trying to imitate the Christians, which is a beautiful thing. And then you just, you just trace it all the way through. I did um, the over the last couple of months. Uh, I have a, a a good friend that is really into theology and history as well, and so we were just kind of talking one night, and we came up with the idea of doing a, a plague theology. So. We got a group of people together, I don't know, 20 to 30 people or so, and just picked a different reading from history, starting in the in the early church, going through um, Luther and Spurgeon and others, um, and then to all the way up to N.T. Wright, and just took a reading a night and just asked the question, like, are we supposed to have a plague theology? And if so, what would it be? And we wanted to gain historical perspective. And you start seeing how there's a lot of wisdom even in Luther's age about cleanliness mm -hmm. and hygiene, but also about this thing you, we were talking about earlier with what am I called to do? And mm -hmm. Luther basically said, like, you're called to do what God's called you to do. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you might not be called to lay your life down and serve your neighbor, but you might be. So don't do it out of obligation because you're trying to you know, earn something before God, but you better do it if you believe God's calling you to do it. Mm -hmm. But look, if you believe that God's led you to flee the city for your safety, and that's your genuine conviction, then flee the city for your safety. Um, but he then he said, if you're in a position of leadership, if you're a pastor or you're in the government, um, God's made it clear that your call is to stay and leave. And so he, even with you know a, a pregnant wife and then a newborn, um, continued to, to serve and to go in. There's some great engravings that show him just in the middle of, of incredible suffering, feeding and washing people. And so it's mm. not like unprecedented and new. And so I think mm -hmm. it's been hard though, because um, you also don't want to minimize 
the real trauma that people are going through today. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about mm-hmm. this right. in big and small ways that is that is right. Bad. I mean, yeah. many people do know someone that's that's suffered, or yes. even just small things, right? Like you think about all the I've got a high school senior and there's college seniors, and that's not like the end of the world, but it's you know there's there's a sense of loss, all these rites mm-hmm. of passage that they would have gone mm-hmm. through, and if if you're a college senior coming out into a world that's literally frozen when it comes to the marketplace, and mm-hmm. you you know might have fears for your ability to pay your loans or get a job or survive. I mean, there's lots of people. And then if you're, if you're a frontline worker, um, you know, maybe you, you are fearful for your life and you don't want to go to work, but you have to, because if you don't go, you won't eat. There were, um, you know, you know, we talked about this, Sam, but there was a, the government called probably for corrupt political reasons called for a 21 day lockdown in Malawi. But the, the posters that people took to the streets with, were the same in most of Sub-Saharan Africa. And there were two main themes. One was um, that the lockdown is more poisonous than coronavirus. And two is, I would rather die of corona than hunger. And so I think there mm-hmm. is a perspective when you think through those things of just understanding your context and yes. just trying to genuinely yes. and sincerely follow God's lead. But this comes full circle because we want identity politics we want the 10 doctrines we're supposed to believe and the 10 things we're supposed to do to feel secure in ourselves. Where real dynamic relationship with Jesus calls for continually pursuing relationship and being willing to lay our lives down the same way he laid his life down for us. And that's mm-hmm. hard and that's scary and that takes faith. So just give me the other thing, please. <laughs> it- don't you think there is always going to be, at least on this side of heaven, there's always going to be a tension of um, when we are trying to walk the road of grace, and yet there are two lines that are not distinctively sinful. You know, they're not um, like someone who decides, I don't want to, I'm not going to drink alcohol. Someone who says, I'm going to drink a glass of wine and be totally fine. And and that these two are not, they're not going to cross over. They're not meant to be in opposition to each other. Yeah. But at the same time, there's extremes of both. You know, there's the legalistic where this person is holding everything. So if they're drinking wine, it's, oh, you should not do that. And that's a sin. This person is saying, oh, they're getting drunk every night. And they're saying to their wife, hey, leave me alone. You know, I can drink. I, I have the freedom to do that. And that, I mean, that's just one example of this issue of trying to be understanding the road of grace in the midst of two, um, what seems like opposite, not necessarily, but can seemingly uh, appear to be opposite to each other, but that tension has to be walked in order for grace to appear. We have, we have like uh, five minutes left. How do you, I I think that's the question that probably most people want to know. And I know it's the it's it's hard because you don't want to give a you know it's you don't want to give a rule or a mandate because it's not it's not if you go down that road it just feeds the dragon so it's more of what does that look like to walk that tension to recognize that there is there are these two roads they don't necess- they shouldn't cross over but we shouldn't also be allowing the extremes to go either how do you walk that tension I mean there's many ways of describing it but the love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
isn't just a religious platitude. Like it's a deep guidance for life kind of thing. Cause you think about that. Like if, if, if I'm pursuing drunkenness and I've got a brother or sister alongside of me that doesn't just say no, no shame, shame, but says, is this what God's called you to do? Is this, is this what it looks like to pursue the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and pushing someone to a deeper relationship with Jesus that then produces that change rather than pushing someone to obey a rule that might just be your man-made rule anyway. Mm. Uh, but I think it's, but I think it, it comes back to the tension of relationship and relationships hard um, relationship with God, with the father, son, and Holy spirit can be hard. And then relationship with each other can be hard. But I think the more we're pushing into relationship, the more we're pushing mm -hmm. into humility and vulnerability and transparency, the more that we are allowing God through the power of his Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus to do the work of transformation. And I think um, that requires us wanting, really wanting the best for somebody else, first mm -hmm. and foremost. And I'll tell people in difficult, tell myself this sometimes too, but I'll tell people in difficult counseling situations where they've been wronged by somebody else. I'll say this at the very beginning, um, something like, look, I, I'm so grateful to be having this conversation with you. Uh, and I so respect you for wanting to work through this, but I have to tell you that the person I'm most concerned for, um, and, and really grieving for is this person that's, that's offended you mm. because they're in a worse place than you are doing more damage to themselves and others. And you at least are pursuing the Lord. And so even as we're talking about what they've done and, and how terrible it is, I'm not minimizing any of that, but I'm saying, can we do that with a genuine hope and desire in our hearts for that person to repent and change mm -hmm. and have a deeper relationship with Jesus too? So mm -hmm. if I genuinely love somebody in a way that's sacrificial and laying my life down, um, then it's going to change the way I approach them. So I don't come self-righteously chastising them for drinking too much. Man, I come grieving and saying, gosh, man, I'm really concerned for you. Or on the other side, someone that's legalistic and building up all their stuff there, mm -hmm. you know, I, I come in the same way. Like, I'm really concerned for you. You know why? Because mm -hmm. you seem to find more confidence in your rules than in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. We need that message now. Not more than ever, but as much as ever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's so important. I think it's going to get more complicated, like we talked about before, as different churches take different courses and different members of churches take different courses of action. And that's where the Curtis Allen line that we started with, that, that grace biblically understood and applied leaves room for differences on non-essential mm -hmm. matters. Yes. Just, yes. Uh, I don't have to judge you. I thought about this a lot lately, too, with churches that a very different doctrine and very different perspective. Um, mm. And it's very free to come out of a tradition that says that you need to always be right. And to come out of a tradition that, and, and to lean into a tradition that says you need to always love. Um, and so say someone's holding to a doctrine, that I think it's horrible and destructive, man, I hope I'm grieving and weeping for them before I'm judging and condemning them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very good. Well, on that note, Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. That, Thank you, as always, this time flew. And, uh, yeah, flew by so quickly. Yeah. 
And uh, thanks everyone. And we, we're praying for you. And uh, if you have any further questions, please let us know. But thanks so much, Toby. All right, love you all.